Maybe some of you can relate to this, but after being in a whole bunch of different places this summer and on Sundays, it's a wonderful, wonderful privilege to be where I feel home is, uh, to be here this morning with you at the Houghton Wesleyan Church, uh, celebrating with you and our church family. Uh, we've all been all over the place, and it is, it's a wonderful thing just to be back here in this congregation. I also like to extend a very warm welcome to any visitors, and especially our new students that are coming to Houghton College. Uh, tell us what we can do to make this a place that is your church home and your church family. So my mother is the wisest person that I've ever known. And at a fairly early age, I know that's a lot of pressure, Mom, but I'm just saying, at a fairly early age, she explained to me the difference between happiness and joy. Happiness, as she said, was generally a feeling. Comes and goes, up and down, it's based on circumstances. And in some ways, there's not a lot you can do about it. You're kind of a victim to happiness. But she said there's something better, and it's called joy. And joy is a choice. And sometimes it requires a little courage and a little grit. But it's a choice. It's a decision to look past the circumstances and maybe the things that might make you happy or sad and choose to celebrate God's faithfulness. As I got a little older, I looked through my Bible and realized that the Bible has virtually nothing to say about happiness. But it's got a ton to say about joy. And I know that a lot of us come today, this morning, probably with a litany of really good reasons not to be happy this morning. I know one person, a great friend of this church, a saint of the church, Louise Princell, this morning, is lying on her back in the nursing home with a broken spine, a broken hip, probably in excruciating pain. And my hunch is she's not feeling a whole lot of happiness this morning. But I can tell you one thing, because if you know Louise Princell, I promise you that she is experiencing the joy of the Lord this morning. And if you were to sit with her, you'd walk away with that joy washing over you this morning. So this morning as we celebrate the Sabbath and the Lord's Supper and our family and our brothers and sisters in Christ, I invite you to choose that kind of joy both today and in the days ahead. Would you please stand with me and join in the call to worship? We'll read responsibly. Speaking of joy, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe, and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself. Please pray with me.
Our loving Father, today, we thank you that we don't put our hope and our confidence for the trials of this day and the days ahead in something so flimsy as happiness. We thank you today that you have given us the joy of the Lord that allows us to have confidence, to have faith and hope that the best days are ahead for us. Thank you for that confidence and give us a wonderful time this morning as we commune with you and our brothers and sisters in Christ. In your name, amen. Amen. It's that truth that uh, brings us together as we worship today. We're so glad you are here. We're especially welcome those of you 
who uh, maybe this is your first time worshiping here, or perhaps you're coming back to school from the academy or the college, uh, new to the area. We're happy to have you here and joining in worship this morning. Take a few moments and share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. mentioned a uh, couple of things in your bulletin this morning. You'll see an insert uh, about Sunday school that starts next week. Uh, love to have you be a part of that. It's a great way to uh, work at uh, disciplining our, our lives and uh, gauging with one other people in uh, our growth as followers of Christ. And also, uh, there's a white sheet about getting connected if you're interested in being a part of some ministries in the church and see a whole lot of options there doesn't obligate you, but just give you some information about that. We'd love to have you involved. Whatever your connection is uh, to the church, whether you're here as a student or you're here year-round, we'd love to have you involved, and it's good for our, our walk with Jesus to share and serve others. Uh, you'll also notice Koinonia tonight at 7 o'clock, and I also wanted to, uh, to mention, if you weren't aware yet, Store Emmett died on Friday, and uh, his arrangements are, visitation is Saturday from 4 to 7 at the Copeland Williams Funeral Home in Fillmore. And the service will be here next Sunday at 2 o'clock. So I uh, just want you to be aware of that. And obviously we want to keep the Emmets in our prayers.
The Old Testament reading this morning is from Joshua, chapter 24. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our forefathers up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites, who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. This is the word of the Lord. I would invite you to stand and sing with me the doxology as I invite the ushers to come forward to take this morning tithes and offerings. Heavenly Father, in light of your great generosity to us, our only response is gratitude and generosity to you. I pray that you'll bless these offerings to your kingdom in your name.
hymn reminds us that if we would um, just trust God, we would find him to be faithful. One of the ways we trust God is to be honest about our burdens, our struggles, and to find that he is indeed a God who forgives as he promised. So let me invite you to join me in the prayer of confession that is printed in your bulletin. Pray together. God of glory, you sent Jesus among us as the light of the world to reveal your love for all people. We confess that our sin and pride hide the brightness of your light. We turn away from the poor. We ignore cries for justice. We do not strive for peace. In your mercy, cleanse us of our sin. And baptize us once again with your spirit, that forgiven and renewed, we may show forth your glory shining in the face of Jesus Christ. As we hear the words of Jesus, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive your sins. As we continue in the spirit of prayer, if you would like to use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me. Father, we thank you for your blessings to us. You, the Almighty God, cares about us, loves us, and is at work in us and in this world. You call us to bring before you the burdens and the concerns of our hearts, and we do that just now. We pray for all who are struggling with life today. We pray for the Emmett family, Wilma, children, grandchildren. We ask that you would give them comfort and peace in this time of death. We pray for all who are grieving that you would give them comfort and peace. We pray for all who are struggling with health issues. We think especially of Eli Knapp and Louise Prinzel, Laura Habecker, Adrian Butine, Hudson Hess, Nancy Cole, Patty Plaza, Brian Orbacher, Peter Lingenfelter, Ellis Brotsman, Chuck Barrett, Cheryl O'Brien, Storer Emmett and Ben King and Doris Asepian and Isla Shea, Sheldon Emerson and Bill Getty, Warren and Ella Woolsey and Mike Raybuck. We pray for Bev Rett and Micah Christensen, Linda Roth and Dick Gould and Emily Cricklock, and for others who are on our minds and our hearts today. Pray for your healing grace in each of them. Help them to know that you are present in whatever the struggle, whatever the need. Father, we pray for uh, all the ways in which life disappoints us, all the ways in which we find life to be a struggle for us, our relationships and our work, our homes. Bring healing, restoration, grace. 
Father, we thank you for this church and the ministries of our church and all the ways in which we serve each other and encourage each other. And we ask, Father, that, that you will help us as a church to be faithful in ministering to each other. We pray for other churches around us. And today we pray for the Levant Wesleyan Church and Falconer, Pastor Al Myers. We pray that you would bond them together in your love and that they would bear witness to your love, their community and beyond. Lord, we pray for our nation in this time of divisiveness and so much happening that, that we struggle to understand. So many perspectives, so much hate and violence. And we ask, Father, that you would bring peace. And we pray that your people would be agents of healing and peace. We pray for those who are been affected and continue to be infected by the affected by the hurricane in Texas. We ask, Father, that you would cause the storm to to leave the area. We pray that you would recede the waters and that the damage would be less than anticipated. We pray for all who have been uh, injured, all who are grieving, all who have lost in this very difficult time, and ask that your grace would be sufficient. We pray that your people would be a catalyst for hope in the midst of hopelessness. Father, we pray for the world beyond us. Pray for refugees and the struggles that they face of trying to find a place to call home. We pray for places of war and, and threats of war and ask that you would bring peace. Father, we pray for your church around the world. Thank you for the ministry that John and Sylvia Christensen have had among the Kisar people in Indonesia. As they continue that work, as John is there, even now, we ask that you would, you would give them wisdom and understanding. And we pray for our brothers and sisters in Sierra Leone who are dealing with the whole nation, dealing with the effects of the recent landslide and flooding, and the grief of hundreds being killed and thousands displaced. Father, we ask that that you would, you would bring about restoration and, and healing. And we pray that your people would be a catalyst for that. Lord, thank you for hearing our prayers. We offer them in the strong and powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So I 
So I surrender all to The New Testament reading this morning is from Luke. I ask if you are able to stand for the reading of the gospel and remain standing for the hymn to follow. The parable of the ten minus. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. He said... A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minus. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subject hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, We don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one he came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, You take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. 
You knew, did you, that I am a hard man, taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, Take his mine away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I always like this time of year. I didn't used to like it when I was young because it meant school was starting and that always gave me a pit in my stomach because I hated that. Maybe some of you feel that the same way. But um, as I got older, I got into college and grad school... This time of year was one of my favorite times of the year. Coming back to school to see, renew acquaintances, getting started, learning again, and just life sort of has a sense of everything is new. And um, it, it feels that way even outside of the academic setting. If you're watching television, this is the time of year where you're seeing the ads for the new shows that are about to start or, or the new seasons that are about to begin. If you're a sports fan, this is the time for football to start. 
And uh, if you like that, then that also brings some new things. It is, but it just has this feeling like we're starting over again. And there's something positive about a sense of we get to start over again. And when we have that feeling, when we're thinking about starting over, it is a great time to evaluate. We do that in January 1st. This is another one of those moments when we stop and ask ourselves, how are my relationships? How committed am I to, to, uh, to enhancing my mind? And what about my walk with Jesus? It's a good time to begin assessing these things, and particularly our spiritual life, because it has such a, a huge bearing on where we go from here. The decisions we are making now are setting us up for what our lives are going to be uh, six weeks down the road, six months down the road, six years down the road. And this parable we just read gives us an opportunity to do just that. It's an opportunity to step back and, and ask the question, who is our king? Do we really want Jesus to be king? Now, this parable, which is a little bit different than Matthew's account of this parable, begins, uh, Jesus says, about a nobleman, a master of a, an area, a man of noble birth, who wants to be a king. He wants to be king over the country where he lives. And the process of that, it was not uncommon for a king, someone who wanted to be king, to, to go to a higher up, a greater authority, and to appeal to them to let them be the king. Herod did this to Caesar. Herod's son did this to Caesar. Sometimes it's granted, sometimes it's not. But the people Jesus speaks to would, very, would easily understand that that's what was happening. This nobleman is going off to appeal to a higher power about being the king. And in the process of that, he calls together ten of his servants and says, here's some of my wealth, here's some of what I have, now work with it while I'm gone. The problem is not everybody wants him to be the king. Verse 14 says that the citizens, which implies a whole lot of the community, they hate him. They don't want him to be king. In fact, there is some speculation that when he says that we don't want this man to be king. The Greek does not have the word man. Now, it's often implied in the language. But there is some speculation that what they're saying is, we don't want this expletive deleted to be king. And, and I mean, they are adamant about it. In fact, they are so adamant about it that they are willing to stick out their necks and send a delegation to this higher power to try to convince that power to not let this man be king. They're that serious about it. It's a lot of effort, a lot of work, a lot of risk. Jesus doesn't tell us why they don't want him to be king, but I think we can surmise pretty easily. It's not because they don't know him. It's not because they are thinking, well, if this guy, we don't know anything about this guy. We have no idea. He just walked out of nowhere, and we don't know what kind of king he's going to be. I think it's because they know exactly what kind of king he's going to be. And they don't want a kingdom based on the principles of this king. They don't want a king who says the last shall be first and the first shall be last. They don't want a king who says, you love the Lord your God by loving your neighbor as yourself. They don't want a king who holds us accountable for how we think about 
people of the opposite sex. They don't want a king who says that blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are humble. Blessed are those who mourn for the burdens and the sins and the pains of the world. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst to be righteous like God. They don't want that kind of a kingdom. They want a kingdom where they can do what they want and have no consequences from it. They want a kingdom in which they can say, I'm a follower of God, but it doesn't change anything about the way I live. They don't want what this king is offering. And they make that known. Unfortunately for them, the man is made king. And when he comes back, he calls his servants to him and says, so what happened? And the first two come, and they've been successful. You know, you gave us, here's more. And he says, well done, good and faithful servants. What's interesting is that the reward he gives them is not more money. You would think he would say, look, you guys are really good at investing, so I'm going to give you more money to invest. He doesn't say that. The reward is they get the authority, authority over cities. And I think that gives us a hint to what this parable is really about. This parable is not so much about that we are using what we've been given for the kingdom. This parable is about being loyal to the king. Now, it involves using what we've been given, but the heart of the parable is, are we loyal to the king? Are we faithful to the king? Is our life shaped around what the king wants? Do we want a kingdom like the king has designed? And these guys are rewarded because they take risks for the king. They stand up for the king. You can imagine that if the citizens of the kingdom are are vehemently opposed enough to this man being king that they are willing to send a delegation to try to keep him from becoming king, you can imagine the intense pressure that they are putting on these servants who are trying to represent the king in their community. I suspect there are all kinds of boycotts and pickets organized. Don't don't do business at noblemen's uh, food shop. Don't, Don't... Do business with the nobleman's fur and trading shop. Don't do business with the nobleman's blacksmith shop. Those guys all want him to be king. And they are not afraid to tell us that. They're not afraid to stand up for him. They are are open about it. And the pressure must be intense. Which is why the king rewards them. Because while he is gone, and when it's most difficult, they are loyal and faithful to the king. And that's why he's so upset with the third guy that comes. This is a guy who can't decide what he wants to do. He is, he refuses to commit, and he basically plays the ends against the middle, hedges his bets. You can almost see going through his mind, he's thinking, all right, if I stand up for the king and he doesn't become king, I'm in bad shape with these guys. But if I don't stand up for the king and he becomes king, I'm in bad shape with the king. So I think the best thing to do is just be neutral. I'll just do nothing. And so he goes, buries his stuff in the ground. And, and that's why the king is so upset with him. Because he says, look, it's not enough for you to say, I'm on your side when I come back and all the pressure is relieved. I want to know if you're loyal to me. I want to know if you're faithful to me when the pressure's intense. 
I want to know what you're going to do when you have no idea when I'm coming back, how long I'm going to be away, or what the opposition may be. I want to know, are you loyal in the difficult times? Do you really want me to be king? And here's the thing. We can say we want Jesus to be king, but it means nothing if it doesn't translate in how we live our lives, in the decisions we make, in the way we treat people. Do we look anything like Jesus? Do we want the principles of the kingdom to be what Jesus wants them to be? And it's not enough to talk about it. You have to see it. It's our behavior. I think that this resembles, I fear it resembles a lot of the, of the Western North American church. You know, we don't really have a lot of pressure on us. Yeah, we have some inconveniences. We don't have much pressure on us. And we have come to believe that you can be a follower of Jesus and have no expectations. You can, be, you can claim to be Christian and have no accountability to God about how you live your life. You can say, I, I'm, a, I'm a part of the kingdom and live any way you want to. As long as you say a prayer, as long as you follow the formula, then you can do whatever you want. And Jesus is saying, that's not being a part of my kingdom. Kenneth Bailey, who wrote a book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, had a lot of, of helped me understand this parable from that perspective. And he writes in this book about uh, doing some teaching at, uh, at a Lutheran seminary in Latvia. And uh, as he was there, he was talking with the people who ran the seminary, and they, they were interviewing candidates for, who wanted to come into the seminary to train to be pastors. And he said to them, so what kind of questions do you ask them? And they said, well, really, we only have one important question. When were you baptized? And Bailey says, how could the date of their baptism possibly have that much importance? I said, because if you were baptized during the Soviet rule, then to be baptized meant to risk everything. It meant that you were putting at risk your well-being, your livelihood, maybe even your life. And if, those, if people were baptized during that time, we say, come on in. We understand the commitment of your faith. But for all the people who were baptized after they were free from Soviet rule, he said, we have a whole lot more questions we need to ask them about why they want to become a pastor. I think Jesus is saying the kingdom is more than words. It's about how we live our lives. And, and, and the, the call of the kingdom is faithfulness. We've come to believe it's success how we measure success. Jesus says, people will know you're my disciples by your fruit. And Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is characteristics of our nature. It's characteristics of our lives. How we live, what are our attitudes, our perspectives, the decisions we make. It is not about being successful, it is about being faithful. And quite frankly, being faithful, I think, is more of a challenge than being successful. 
it's kind of hard to measure faithfulness. And success, we can measure with formulas, and we love formulas. But the kingdom is not about success, it's about faithfulness. I was thinking the other day about what happened to the other seven guys? You know, ten people, ten people, ten guys come, ten servants come, and they are given stuff, but we only hear about three of them. What happens to the other seven? And we have no idea. But I got to thinking about that, and what if this was the scenario? That they come before the master and say, Master, we did everything you want us to do. We stood up, we risked, we started businesses, we did everything we could to, to, to use what you've given us wisely, and we failed. Everything fell apart. Yeah, and we, we, we look back and we made some foolish decisions and, and we, we did things probably in a way that we, maybe we could have done better, but we're so sorry we failed. We tried, but we failed. People, nobody would come to our store. Nobody would invest with us. Nobody would help us. We, we tried everything we knew, but it just didn't work and we are so sorry. And you wonder, would the master say to them, You failures, get out of my sight. I don't think so. I think the master says to them the same thing he says to the other two. Well done, good and faithful servant. He might not make them in charge of ten cities or five cities. They might have a different kind of assignment, a different kind of authority. But the point was faithfulness. It makes me think about those stories you read of missionaries that feel a call to God in the 1880s. And they feel a call to to go to Africa or Asia, other places of the world. And so they spend three, four, five, six years, maybe more, preparing, learning, going to seminary and learning how to teach people the gospel. or, Or they... They, uh, they spend time learning how to, how to help people translate languages. Or they go to medical school and, and in order to create a clinic. And they get all of that learning done after all those years. And they, they arrive at the port in New York. And they get on the boat. And they set sail for their destination. And they are so excited. And they spend months sailing to their place. And they spend the whole time getting themselves ready and prepared. And they get there. And they get started. And they start meeting people and engaging people and, and, and doing the things that they're called to do. Setting up clinics and schools and, and trying to work on the language. And after about two months, they contract dengue fever, malaria. And within three months, they're dead. And you look at that and you say, wow, what a waste. That was foolish. No one would argue that they were successful. But I think when they meet Jesus, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Because it's not about success. It's about faithfulness. It's about faithfulness. I would guess the hardest part of this story is the last verse. You could tell that was not exactly an enthusiastic thanks be to God when we read that. It was pretty anemic. In fact, I'm thinking to myself, that should be in the form of a question. Thanks be to God? Really? 
I thought of quitting, ending the reading at verse 26. You know, it's just like, let's not even pretend verse 27 is there. It's just going to complicate things and, you know, we're thinking about it. Let's just act like that isn't there. But obviously we don't do that. Because that would just make us more curious, right? There's, I don't know why it's there. I don't understand the, the, the whole implication of how that ends. Why the master says that and what's happening. I, I do not understand and anything you read, nobody can say, I found a precise thing. But let me... Let me just offer a few things to think about. If those people remain in the kingdom, and they are adamant enough and vehemently opposed enough to this man being the king, you know that's not going to stop. And they're going to do everything in their power to convince all the rest of the people to turn on him as the king. And at the very least... It ought to disturb us as much that, that letting them remain in the kingdom to wreak havoc on innocent people as it does how this verse ends with what the master says to do to them, to execute them. But also think about this. Bailey says that the, in the parable it does say, this is what I want you to do to them. But the parable does not say that is what they actually did to them. Now you can say that's splitting hairs, you're, you're, you know, that's in, it's implied that that happened, and that may well be the case, but it doesn't actually say that's what they do. And his point is, while there are consequences to our choices... There are consequences to our choices. And these, these are not people who don't know anything about the master. These are not people who, who are condemned because they were, they were ignorant. These are people who know exactly what the master is and what the master wants, and they don't want it. And there are consequences to those choices. But the gospel is all about Consequences that we deserve versus consequences that we receive. And in fact, you and I are living witnesses of the truth that there are consequences we deserve that we haven't received. Paul says, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What do we deserve? We deserve death. Every single one of us deserves death. And what are we offered? Eternal life. Freedom. Grace. And I think this is such an important part of this story because everyone in this story is reacting and responding out of their view, their idea, their understanding of this man who has become king. The man who says that he doesn't want, he, did, he was afraid of the king because he saw that he, his view of, the, of this man, he was harsh and threatening. And you don't want to fail. And so he buries his stuff. And you would say, well, everybody thinks that's the case. 
But if that is truly the case, then why would the other two say, I don't think he's like that. I think he's the kind of king who loves us to risk for him. I think he's the kind of king who says, if you do, if you, if you act like me, if you stand up for me, if you are loyal and faithful for me, that's what I'm, that's what I'm asking for. And failure and success is almost insignificant. It comes down to our view of God. If, God, if we view God as this unpleasable taskmaster, we're never going to risk for him. We're going to live our lives in fear, afraid to fail, afraid to fall short, afraid to, to, to mess up. Because God is just waiting to get us. But the call of the gospel is the freedom to risk The freedom to take chances, the freedom to stand up for the king and to represent him. And even if we fail, even if we fall flat on our faces, even if it means that the the struggle is greater and the burden is heavier, we do it because we know who God is. And he's good. He's gracious and merciful and compassionate and forgiving. And he's looking not for success, but for faithfulness. And that's really what this table is about. I mean, this is a table that reveals to us the heart and the nature of the kingdom and the king. This is the God that we worship. The God who goes to a cross for us. Who goes to a cross because of our sin, not his. Isaiah says, it's for his wounds we were healed. This is a God who sacrifices himself for relationship with us. This is our king. And this is the king who calls us to be faithful when it's easy, when it's hard. When it's a struggle and when it's not. So the question that confronts all of us is, do we really want Jesus to be king? King of our lives, king of the world, king of everything. If we do, it leads to life and blessing and joy and troubles and hardship. And struggle. But relationship with the one who created us. And who calls us to be what he created us to be in all of his fullness. Father, thank you for your grace and mercy to us. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ. And the love that you have poured out upon us. And we pray today that you'll give us a new image of who you are. And that you are trustworthy and good. And that we are, we will never regret being faithful. Give us grace to be faithful. Father, we pray that you'd pour out your blessing on the bread and the cup. That as we eat and drink. 
we may know the power of your Holy Spirit in us, that we may be united in your grace through your Spirit, and that we may celebrate who you are as our King. Through Christ we pray. The night that Jesus was betrayed, meeting with his disciples, he took bread. He gave thanks to the Father in heaven and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. For this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. On the same night he took the cup. Again he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We're receiving communion this morning by the mode of intention. It means to dip in. And so as you're released by rows, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, eat it, and then you may return to your seat by the outside aisles. Altar rails always open if you'd like to stay and pray. If coming to the front is difficult for you or if you simply prefer, uh, we have... Uh, trays of bread and cups are happy to serve you in your seat. Just let the usher know as your row is released. And I have gluten-free wafers here, and I'm happy to serve you. Just let me know as you come up to the front. I'd like to mention that we practice open communion at the Wesleyan Church. It might be the first time you've ever worshipped here, but if you come today with your heart open to Christ and desire for Him to be King, come, receive these gifts from our gracious, loving Heavenly Father.
receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen.